Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we continue our deep dive into what goes on behind every major TV writing program as we take a look at the Warner Brothers Television Writers Workshop. And to do that, we're joined by a very special guest, Rebecca Windsor, the director of the Warner Brothers Television Writers Workshop. Welcome. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And like with all our episodes on the TV writing programs, we will be covering everything from the application process and the selection process to the program program itself and what comes after. So let's get started. So first off, can you just give us a brief history and overview of the WB Writers Workshop? Sure. The Warner Brothers Writers Workshop has been around in some incarnation for about 40 years. Um, We actually didn't even realize that it was such a momentous anniversary until someone in the company a couple months ago kind of came forward and and let everyone know. And we knew that it had been around for a long time, but not quite that long. It's had many different incarnations over the years. At some point, they were doing regional kind of workshops. Um, For a long time, it was something that writers paid to be a part of. But in its current incarnation, which is now the 11th year. It is not a paid workshop. Nobody has to pay to take it. And it's sort of kind of set in stone, like what what it became 11 years ago is what it kind of is today. And why do you feel writers programs like yours are so important to the industry? They're so vital to the industry because as we all know, there are, and as I'm sure your listeners can attest to, there are so many talented writers out there who cannot get a break. They cannot launch their careers. And even with the Warner Brothers program, as well as the programs around town at the other studios and networks, even then it's still incredibly difficult to get in. And I know that we are faced every year when we're making our decisions. I mean, the decisions are not come by easily. There's always an incredible amount of thought and debate. And it's also, you know, there's a lot of pressure that I think we put on ourselves because we know that when somebody gets into the program, we are really changing their lives. And it's just a sad fact that we don't have the budget or the bandwidth to be able to have more writers than what we do, because there are always way more writers that apply and that are deserving of a shot than we have the space for. So I think all the programs are vitally important. And even so, we only kind of scratch the surface at being able to help launch that talent. And typically, what are the dates that the program opens and closes? So the application period is the month of May. The application opens May 1st, closes May 31st. And then the program actually starts in October and runs through the middle of March. Do you feel the goal of the program is more of a staffing program or more developmental in terms of the writers? Our goal is to get everybody staffed. We're not 100% successful in that always, but we are very close to that. (laughs) And I would say that's sort of the career goal is to get them staffed. But I think if we're looking at it more philosophically, the goal is really to develop them as writers. And if you've gotten into the workshop, then we all know that you're incredibly talented. You know, you're at the top of the top. So yes, there is still creative development in terms of we have them write scripts and go through that process. But I think so much of the workshop is also to fill in the gaps on everything else that they will need to know that's going to make them a well-rounded writer and successful when they do launch their careers. So let's talk a little bit about the application process itself. Can you walk us through what that process is like and what is needed to apply? Sure. So the first step in the application process and probably the most important piece is the spec pilot. So that's a spec of a show that's on the air. Every January, we publish on our website the list of the accepted specs. It's not every show on the air because I think 
you know, with more than 500 scripted series now, it would just be impossible to include everything. But we feel it's a very comprehensive list. And we think that most people should be able to find at least one show on on that list that suits their voice and that they feel that they can uh, do a great job in writing. So to apply, you need to have a spec of that, which, you know, we advise take your time in writing. I think trying to bang out a spec in a couple of weeks is probably not going to be a successful endeavor. And then we also ask for a personal statement and a resume or bio. And that's it. If you do advance to the second round of the application process at a later date, then we will ask for an original pilot or it can be any original material. So it can be a feature script. It can be a play. It can be a short story. Most people do pilots, but it can be anything. And the reason we ask for a spec, which I know a lot of people ask in this day and age for staffing, nobody wants to read specs. The reason that we ask for it is that the job of a staff writer is going to be to write in your showrunner's voice. So we need to see if you can do that. If we're reading a spec of a show, we need to feel like, yes, this they've captured the tone, they've captured the way certain characters tell jokes, the way that the relationships are shown. Uh, it feels like it could actually be an episode of the show. And it almost kind of evens the field a little bit like the SATs where you can say like, okay, let's look at all the Killing Eve specs. And and you can kind of see among those, like who are the people that really nailed it versus the ones that didn't. And then obviously we asked for the original pilot or, or original script so that we can see what the writer's own voice is. It's kind of like a benchmark of sorts. Yeah. And how do you decide the shows that are accepted as a spec sample? Is it based on the reader's uh, availability or the popularity of the shows? No, not necessarily. We don't ever put a first year show on there because when we publish the list in January, by the time that they have submitted in May and we're reading over the summer that show may be canceled. It may not last a full season. So we try as of the beginning of January doing anything, unless it's a first season show that has already, you know, this is us in its first season had already been renewed for its second season. So in that case, we would put something like that on the list, but otherwise we don't put any first year shows, obviously anything that's not on the air, we don't have on the list. And beyond that, I mean, I feel like we cover, you know, all the bases of the major broadcast shows and pretty much anything that most people know. I mean, we just may not have a random show that's on epics or every kind of comedy on Comedy Central, you know, some things that are a little bit more fringe or esoteric. And, you know, at a certain point, it's a little bit subjective. It's, you know, it may be a more esoteric show, but if I've seen it and I really love it, then I might say, let's put this on, you know, so there's, it's not to say that there's no rhyme or reason, but I think we just, you know, again, try and be very thoughtful about it and talk about it as a group of, you know, do we have everything? Are we missing anything? And we also talk to the other programs and not to say that we have exactly the same list as them, but we get their opinions also. It's like, oh, did, oh yeah, we did forget to include this show. So. And in terms of the applicants, who is eligible or not eligible to apply? As long as you're over 18 and have not been staffed, you're eligible to apply. So even if you've been, you know, like a writer's assistant and they gave you a freelance script or you co-wrote, you would still be eligible to apply. But if you have been staffed at any level, you would not. In terms of international writers, as long as they, you know, arrange their own visas, they have an O-1 or anything like that, they are welcome. And we've had international writers as well. We just can't help them get their visas in order to get the job and they have to be in Los Angeles. But again, we've had people from not Los Angeles 
moved to Los Angeles when they got into the program. And so is the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop considered a diversity program? If so, what is the program's definition of diversity? It is not considered a diversity program. We are inclusive. We always have an eye towards writers of color and women, of course. And my predecessor who kind of trained me and kind of made the program what it is was African American. And he was the one who firmly believed that if you call it a diversity program, there's a different sensibility than I think just these are the best of the best. And so I think it helps us when we are going to our showrunners and advocating and saying, here are our current writers you would be lucky to have on your staff to say, these are the best of the best that we found out of the thousands that have applied. And oh, by the way, some of them are African-American and some of them are women and some of them are Asian, as opposed to these are our diversity writers to fill your diversity slot. So it's just kind of a, a slight shift in how we are able to advocate for them, but I think it makes a difference. And focusing on that initial sample, what are the most important things you look for in a spec of an existing show? First and foremost, that it feels like the show. There's a show that I remember this past season reading, every episode of the show always opens with a character doing a voiceover. And I started reading a spec and there was no voiceover. And it's, you know, from page one, it was like, well, you're not capturing what the show is. So things like that are important. And then beyond sort of, feeling it captures a show, are you also able to inject something of yourself as a writer into that? And that's a little bit more kind of tenuous because it can mean different things to different people. I think on the comedy side, obviously it has to be funny. If I'm not laughing at jokes in a show that is very joke driven, you know, by page three, then that's a problem. And I think, you know, just in general, we've had people do really bold moves in their specs where they've run with like a character that we never learned their backstory and sort of decided like this episode is going to be all about this character's backstory that we've never investigated. So that was really interesting. Or they've taken a show and kind of in a fantastical sense, transposed it into a different time period, but kept all of the same characters and dynamics. And that was one of the more like, hmm, I don't know about this, but it's kind of interesting and it sort of works. Um, so I want to read more. But at the end of the day, I think it's also just is it a compelling read? Do I want to see more from this writer? And to your earlier example, what are your thoughts on those more stunty specs? It depends. So there was one example where it was actually a writer who ended up getting into the workshop. She transposed her characters into a different time frame and it worked. It was like, oh, okay, that's really bold move. But like you captured still the tone and everything. It's just taking place 200 years earlier. And then there was a spec this year that was actually a mashup of two very different shows that was interesting. And it wasn't necessarily just that it didn't work, but that each individual show did not feel enough like that show. So if that writer had been able to, even if it was still like, oh, this is weird. I don't know if this mashup works, but when they were, you know, dealing with the scenes in show A and then the scenes in show B and each one sort of felt like, oh, wow, they really captured that. And then, oh, wow, they really captured that. I think we would have advanced him, but because that one felt stunty, but not executed well, that, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend that. It's about finding that right balance. Yeah. And what are some of the most common mistakes you see in people's spec scripts when they're submitting? <laughs> Typos. I, I, I mean, that, that's like a basic thing. And I just, I feel like if you can't, if you're not great at proofreading or you've read it 20 times, have your friend look at it, have three friends look at it. It's just, it's a really basic concept, but speaks so much about professionalism and attention to detail and all of that. So I would say that's important. Obviously not being able to capture the show well is, is, you know, not being funny if it's a comedy, you know, we, we forgive 
things like page count sometimes, you know, or if like the structure is not exactly right. And that's not to say that, you know, you want like your act breaks to still be really compelling. And if they're not, that's also bad. But if you're running a one hour and it's 67 pages or something, that's too long. But if it's really good, then, you know, we feel like we can teach you the structure and we can teach you how to kind of rein it in a little bit, but we can't really teach you how to write well. And what is the reading process like? Is there some sort of scoring system, different reads? How does that work? We hire a, a few paid readers and they're people who we've used for years, whose taste we know and, and trust. And so they, because we, we get like 2,300 submissions, so there's no way that, that myself and my team can get through all of those. So the readers do the first pass on all the scripts and then they submit to us their top picks. And then also if I get a referral, so if a showrunner emails me and says, my writer's assistant is applying, then I'll also make sure that I'm going to read that. And then based on that, then we discuss who we want to advance to the second round. And our paid readers only read the specs. They don't read the original pilot. So once we move to the second round, it's just the internal workshop team reading. So moving on to the personal statements, what are you looking for when you're reading over those? You know, insight into who you are that makes you memorable. What I will say is that personal statements are important, but they are never as important as the script. So you could have the most fascinating story, you know, in your background and a great personal statement. But if your script is not up to par, you're not going to make the cut. So it's only additive. It's never going to get you through. But say, all things being considered, there's two scripts that we like equally. And maybe one person has a better personal statement or more interesting background, then maybe that might push you over the edge. I tend to get bored by the personal statements that say things like, you know, TV was my babysitter growing up because of, you know, whatever, I'm a child of divorce or or whatnot. And it's not, you know, to say that you have to have had some terrible trauma in your life or dysfunction or horrible thing happened to you to make you who you are. I've read some of those that are actually really fascinating, but it's not like, oh, you need that thing to get through. I mean, I've found equally impressive personal statements about people talking about, you know, like a trip they took to India and some experience there that kind of changed them or just, or a movie that they saw as a kid that really spoke to them and made them discover the kinds of stories that they wanted to tell. So there's not really a rhyme or reason to it, except really kind of honing in on what is the thing that makes you, you. And do you pay attention to how that essay connects to the script or is it kind of a different part of the process? It's kind of different. Um, Yeah. I mean, unless in their personal statement, they say like, you know, they say something about, I only like to write stories about X and then the spec is nothing like that. But generally I'm not really looking at it in those terms. And so are you looking at it in both in terms of the content of it and their ability to tell a story through that personal statement? Yes. Yes. I've also can be put off by the tone of a personal statement. Sometimes there are people who feel very, I mean, not like aggressive, but just a little, like a little much. You can tell even from the way that they write the personal statements that they're just going to be like a lot. And so, (laughs) you know, I, I would just be aware of that. And what's important in the resume that people are submitting? What do you look for there? Because people come from such diverse backgrounds. So I don't actually use it as a, as, a, as a reason to judge a person because, yes, we have quite a few people who apply who come up through the ranks of being a writer's PA, writer's assistant, showrunner's assistant, etc. But we also have people who have no connection to Hollywood whatsoever who are applying and they're, you know, living in other parts of the country and are working as a lawyer or... So I, I don't actually 
sort of rank or judge a person's experience based on that. Again, it's it can be interesting information, but I don't think I would ever put through or not put through someone based on their experience. So it's not really possible to be, let's say, overqualified or underqualified to apply. I don't think you can be underqualified at all. I mean, we've, like I said, we've had people who have gotten into the program who um, we had someone two years ago. We didn't know until he, we interviewed him for as a finalist that he was still living in Nashville and practicing as a lawyer. And, you know, on the side was like doing script competitions for like Austin Film Festival and Nichols and all that kind of stuff. But this was the thing that brought him out to L.A. when he got in. And I mean, overqualified? I mean, no, because based on a resume, you could say, oh, this person's been a writer's assistant for so long and they wrote the script, but yet they still haven't been able to break through. So can we help them? So what are some of the more common mistakes you see in people's applications when they've been submitted? I mean, mainly it is typos and proofreading and sometimes maybe the tone of the personal statement or it just kind of being very generic. And because our application really is just the script and that, there's not really anything else that we judge people off of. You know, as I said before about sort of the mistakes people make in their specs, that's probably the most important thing to focus on. And do you feel that certain people worry about certain elements of the application process when they shouldn't? You know, the question that I've gotten several times is in terms of picking the spec, you know, people would say like, oh, I, you know, I guess there's websites that say like, don't write this, it's over specced, you know, these are the shows that aren't specking as much. And, and I think they're trying to strategize a little bit about not doing a show that's really popular that year. And I think for me, that's the wrong way to go about choosing it. I think just write the show that you can hit a home run on that you feel like, God, if I could get staffed on that show, like I could just knock it out of the park. It so suits my voice because even the shows that were the most popular that we read an enormous amount of the best ones still rise to the top. That's sort of a mistake that people may overthink, you know, am I going to go write this like really weird show on some obscure cable network that no one else is going to write, but I probably don't watch it also. So moving on to the selection process, once you have all of these applicants, can you just walk us through how uh, you whittle those down and what the stages of the process are? Yeah. So we get the specs, we get our recommendations from the readers and then also any sort of referrals. And then the team reads all of them and we discuss at length. And then we decide who we want to invite to the second round, which is an original pilot, original material. And then they have a very short turnaround to send it to us. And the reason we ask that is that we don't want, I mean, you should have an original piece of material in your portfolio. So when somebody asks you for it, you should be able to send it within a couple of days. So then we get the original pilots, we read those. And then again, much, much thoughtful process and, you know, conversation, trying to figure out who we want to meet. And it's never, I mean, it's very, very rare that based on the two pieces of material that there's two where we're like, oh my God, this person's a shoe. And, you know, often it's the spec was so strong and the pilot's good or vice versa that the spec was like, it was good, but it wasn't the best, but we were interested in the pilot was amazing. But we still, I think there's no exact science to any of this. So it is just what we're responding to. It's very hard to kind of 
talk about how we make those decisions other than it's that gut feeling of, do we think that there's potential here? Are we excited about this person based on these two scripts? And then we invite a smaller group in to interview. And the interview is incredibly important because this is TV writing and not feature writing, being good in the room and being not socially awkward and, you know, just being like a normal, easygoing, cool person is really important because the job is you're sitting around for 10 hours a day with a group of writers just kind of brainstorming and talking all day, sometimes about material, sometimes just about The Bachelor last night. So you just have to be able to (laughs) hang with people. You know, there have been people who, based on their two scripts, we did think, oh my God, this person, they're getting in. They are phenomenal. And we met them and it was incredibly disappointing because, you know, either they were almost damaged. Like there was a guy who cried twice in our 20 minute interview, which was a little like one cry maybe we'll give you. But after two, it's sort of like this guy feels damaged. We've had people who've come in like way too strong where we couldn't even get a word in and they were just, their personality was just sucking up everything and they weren't reading the cues. And then there are people who were fine, but just again, not memorable, just we need to know that when we're sending a showrunner, a, a writer, that we can stand by them and that a showrunner is going to be like, yes, I need this person in our room. So if they just kind of feel, I don't it's not even apathetic. It's just like there's not a lot of personality there and it's nothing to say about the quality of their writing. But again, because it's TV and what the process is of, of being in a writer's room, that personal and interpersonal dynamic is incredibly important. And there's people who have careers who are just okay writers, but they are amazing in the room. We hope to get people who are both. So yes, the the interview process is, uh, is very illuminating sometimes. And sometimes we're very excited and a person is everything we want them to be. And it's, you know, sort of like the, it's, it's an easy yes. And then even, you know, putting aside the people who are the obvious no's once we meet them, there's always people where it's sort of trying to decide between a a couple ways to go. And that's why I said earlier about if we had more space and a bigger budget to be able to support more than eight writers, we would because these decisions are very hard come by. And I know that doesn't make anyone feel any better when they haven't gotten in. But it's, it's, it's all to say that if the wind blew a different way on that particular day, it could have been the other person getting in. And going back to that second sample, what do you look for in that original material that adds to the spec or the previous script that you read in that first round? You know, that thing that everyone hates to hear, but their voice, what makes them unique? What is their perspective? What is their point of view? How do they, you know, sub- subvert our expectations, make the familiar feel fresh and new, which is easier said than done. But again, you know, whether they're telling a coming of age story or a revenge tale or any of the tropes that are out there, how do they show us something that we haven't seen before? And it's, you know, regardless of genre, it doesn't really matter. So how many people do make it through to that interview round? And then who are they being interviewed by? Uh, We interview 24 people because we have eight slots. So we'll interview three people for each slot. And they will meet with the workshop team, as well as another Warner Brother executive, either a development executive or a current executive. If you get into the workshop, that executive that you meet will then be your executive mentor and be, you know, there to not only, you know, give you notes on your scripts, but also help advocate for you when staffing season comes along. So we want to make sure that whoever is signing on to mentor 
is as invested in the person. It would not make sense for us to choose someone and then just be like, hey, here's your mentor. And if it's not a good match, and again, they have such expertise also. So it does help to have it be a collective decision and have all of us meet and again, do more thoughtful conversation. (laughs) (laughs) And what kinds of questions do you usually ask in those interviews? You know, a lot of it is just trying to get to know them. I know writers will come in incredibly nervous and we're not there to try and stump them. It's obviously if you've made it that far and we've read these two scripts, we think you're incredibly talented and, you know, we read a personal statement, but that's never getting the full picture. So it really is just tell us who you are, you know, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. And I think not only in doing that, also what we can see is, are they able to tell the story of their life or whatever they want to share? Are they a good storyteller? Because all of those, whether it's your elevator pitch or whatnot, those are all opportunities to show who you are as a storyteller. So if you give us sort of the Wikipedia bio of I was born here and I grew up here and then I went to college here and then I got this job, that's less interesting than, so I was born here and then this thing happened to me and, you know, whatever it is, but but tell us a story of your life. We also like to ask just, you know, what are the things you like to write about? Are you drawn to certain themes? What do you like to watch? Which does not have to be Warner Brothers shows. And again, <laughs> there's no right answer to that. But again, it's in listening to you talk about the shows that you like, we also get a sense of who you are and what you respond to and what are the things that excite you as a writer. So it's, you know, we we try and make it as casual and as warm an experience as an interview can be. Kind of like a, a general meeting in that sense. It is. It is. It's 100% a general meeting. And what are some of the common things that tend to trip people up in these interviews that you find? Nerves. And we know that people can be nervous and Again, we we do our best to kind of put them at ease. And so hopefully, again, to your listeners, if you've made it to an interview stage, just have the confidence that we think you're really great. And we want you to be amazing. Just like anyone tells you on any interview, like, we want to hire you. We want to let you into the workshop. So please be, you know, we're hoping you're as amazing as we think that you're going to be. Nerves can get in the way. And then I think, as I mentioned before, not reading the room can sometimes get in the way people who, and maybe it's nerves, but just kind of don't stop talking and don't even pause for us to even kind of guide the conversation a little bit. What are some of the key differentiators between a finalist who makes the program versus one who does not? Again, it can sometimes be incredibly clear upon meeting someone we're excited about them or not. Like, as I mentioned before, whether they're too aggressive, whether they're socially awkward and just like, you know, it's not nerves, but there's just like, they, they just don't do well talking to people <laughs> um, or just kind of blah, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, where it's like, we're asking them questions. And instead of them using that as an opportunity to jump off and kind of share, like they just answer the question and it's a little bit like pulling teeth. So putting that aside among the people that we like, again, it's I don't know. I, it's it, it's it's a really tough question. And sometimes it's a gut feeling. You know, sometimes it might be one of us, whether it's me, maybe it's the executive has a stronger feeling in one direction or another. And, it, you know, it's also sort of trying to think of maybe the kind of writer they are. Do we have opportunities for them on our shows, which generally is not a problem because Warner Brothers make so many different kinds of shows. So that's, you know, often not the issue. What often happens also is they're very talented and they're really great, but they're a little green. You can just tell like they're not quite ready. Let's track them 
encourage them to apply next year and maybe then they'll be ready. And I don't just mean green, like they're too young, but just there's certain people that just have that, they're not quite ready. And there are plenty of people who have gotten into the the writer's workshop on their second or their third time applying. So it shouldn't be, again, if you've made it to an interview and not getting in should hopefully not be demoralizing. It should be a vote of confidence that you're on the right track. It didn't happen this year, but every year that I've been with the program, there has been somebody that has applied previously and had not gotten in and then got in later. And when you're selecting the finalists, is there a balance you try to get between the comedy and drama writers? So of the eight writers that we take, only two are comedy writers. And the reason for that is really based on the opportunities and how hard comedy is in general, particularly because the state of comedy, at least for the last couple of years, and sort of the trend going into cable half-hour dramedies that are not really joke-driven. Warner Brothers doesn't make a lot of those shows, so as much as I love watching shows like Atlanta and Transparent and Master of None and You're the Worst, we don't make them. So what our bread and butter is on the comedy side are very traditional multicams. They make the company a lot of money. Um, (laughs) And a lot of our comedy applicants are veering into the dramedy space. And so sometimes there's not an opportunity for them. And even on the comedy side, it's just been harder in general to get our comedy writers jobs. And in fact, the last two years, each year, one of our comedy writers has been staffed on a one hour show. They were lighter one hours that we're looking for to have a comedy voice in the room. So it's great that there's that opportunity, but it also goes to show that we have not had enough comedy pilots picked up. Last year we had none. And when we do, they're just, it's, it's much more challenging. So, so it's two comedy writers and six drama writers. So you mentioned that you encourage people to reapply often. What lessons do you feel people should take based on how far they made it? I think if, you know, if, if they've made it to finalists, they should feel pretty good that it just wasn't their year. So they're on the right track. If they made it to the original pilot, I think they should also feel pretty good. And if you haven't, then obviously you need to do some more work. Regardless, one of the things that I can't stand is when people reapply with the same script, particularly if you didn't get through to even the second round. If the script wasn't good enough the first time, I don't know why you're applying with it the second time. But even if you made it all the way to finalist, I still think that you need to write a new spec. And that just goes to the discipline of writing and honing your skills and not resting on your laurels. And I think that's, you know, separate from the workshop, I also just think for any writer that has a really great original pilot that's gotten them tons of meetings, you can't coast on that pilot for the next three years. You always need to be generating new material because people are going to want to see it. So I see it a lot. There was someone this year who submitted the same script. And I looked back at our archive because we have archives. So we know if I'm like, I remember that name. Did they apply before? I can tell (laughs) it was, she submitted the same script three years in a row. And I checked like, Oh, did she do a rewrite? But it was exact same page count. You know, I kind of like looked at the app because It was like the same line. So that's very lazy, I think. So in terms of tracking who was applied previously, does that kind of help or hinder a writer in being selected? Do you say, well, they got so close these last two years and maybe that's the tiebreaker? Or do you say they got, they have applied for five years in a row and they haven't gotten in? Do you hold that against them? How does it all work? I don't know that I hold it against them if it was really a tough call each year. And that can happen. There was a writer that made the finals two years in a row 
I think the third year, I think we all just sort also had this sense of we really like them, but we don't love them. And so that was just an internal conversation of like, I just don't think it's ever going to happen for them. But at the same time, like I said, every year there is somebody who has applied before that we really liked. And I don't know that we let them in because, oh, we feel bad, like it's their third time. But I will say that sticking with it, I mean, that shows stamina and it shows, you know, grit that you keep kind of going for it. So I don't know that there's a kind of a easy answer to that. It's really on a case by case basis, whether or not I don't think it helps or it hurts at all, because each case is very unique. Let's get into the program itself. And firstly, what do you see as the unique strengths of your program that sets it apart from all the others? Oh, it's a good question. Well, I don't know all the ins and I mean, I'm friends with, you know, all my counterparts at the other programs, but I don't know sort of date like week to week exactly how their programs run. So we might be doing the same thing, but I think the things that set us apart, I mean, I believe strongly in just who we select and we have great speakers and lecturers covering a variety of topics, which we can get into in a second that I think, like I said, our goal is really to make them the most well-rounded writers so that when they get their first job, they know everything they need to know. And it's a very rigorous experience. It's a little bit, you know, like boot camp at times. And we don't go easy on them. We do push them because we need to get them ready. And we also, I think one of the things that's made us so successful over the years and kind of garnered us such a great reputation is just we couldn't do it without the support of the studio. That's the executives and that's all of our showrunners because if they didn't want to hire our people, then it would be pushing a rock up a hill. It's a great feeling that I get a lot of incoming calls during staffing season. Hey, who do you have? As opposed to me reaching out and being like, please, please take one of our writers, you know? (laughs) And I think as alumni have been staffed and have become rock stars and have ascended the ranks to the point that many of them are showrunners and having overall deals and stuff like that themselves. But it makes it much more likely for a showrunner who has hired people the last two years who have been fantastic to come back and say, oh, I know I'm going to get someone fantastic from you. So I'm going to keep doing it. So it's this domino effect that I think helps keep us so successful and has launched so many careers. And what is the time commitment for the program? How often do they meet over what period of time? We meet one night a week. We start usually around mid-October and we end in mid-March. So it's always one night a week. And then, you know, obviously we have people who have day jobs as writer's assistants or, you know, even outside the industry. So we start at seven o'clock so that people can do their jobs and then come afterwards. So you touched on some of the classes and workshops that you put the writers through. Can you talk a little bit about that and what they're teaching? Our lecture series, we bring in showrunners and we bring in executives. And some of the classes are very macro level. This is how the business industry works, you know, very kind of, you know, we'll get into the weeds on sort of the structure of studios and networks and deficit financing and how syndication affects things and packaging, although, you know, who knows what's going to happen with packaging, but that it was a topic, if it's a benefit or not. And things that I think a lot of writers sort of hear these words and never know what is a put pilot, you know, what is penalties, like all of that kind of stuff. So, We do classes like that, but we also do classes that are devoted to developing creative skills that we think are helpful. So, 
you know, we'll do a class on pitching where they get feedback on their pitches. We do an improv class to get writers to think on their feet and not be so in their head. We do a class on interviewing, you know, how is a, uh, what, how do you prepare for a general interview compared to how do you prepare for a showrunner interview for a job? We do boarding exercises where we board a bake show and sort of teach them kind of like the structure of everything. We do a group writing exercises, you know, where they write a Franken script because that often can happen. <laughs> um, we hear from a showrunner who talks about kind of like the do's and don'ts in his experiences, like be this writer, don't be that writer. We hear from kind of more recent alumni who, you know, maybe like story editor, ESE level, who will talk about uh, these are the unspoken rules. Like you got the job, hooray. Here's what no one's going to tell you when you show up on day one, you know, sort of the unspoken politics to that are going to be there and how to avoid them and how to navigate certain situations. How do you make yourself invaluable to a showrunner and, you know, get asked back and get promoted and many more. And then we do a simulated writer's room where everyone is assigned a script to write. So all the drama writers and all the comedy writers will write a show, but not together. They just write the same show. And then they're expected to hit the deadlines. You would be on a show. So they'd come in and pitch their story areas. We sign off on it. And then the next week they would turn in their beat sheets. The next week they would turn in their outlines. Then over winter break for two weeks, they would write their draft. And then they have a week to revise. And so that's for us to see, can they write strong material really quickly under pressure? Can they take notes and incorporate that? But also we have all the writers read everyone else's scripts and act like a writer's room. Cause it's really hard to teach writer's room dynamics and hone those skills unless you're putting it into practice. So they all read and they all give each other notes and we work on those dynamics. Like, are you talking too much and monopolizing the room or you had a good thought, but you were so long winded that we lost track of you three minutes ago. Are you too in your head because you don't want to speak until you have the perfectly articulated thought. And by then we've moved on to the next thing. So it's, you know, honing all those skills and making them feel more comfortable with pitching something that doesn't land and then moving on and not like beating themselves up about it. So yeah, so that's the writer's portion. And then finally we develop an original pilot with each of them. We don't do that in the class. We just do that one-on-one. So that's what we're doing right now, developing their pilots, which we'll use for staffing season as it rapidly approaches. And to that writing process, what do you hope the writers learn through the setup of writing a script in such a tight timeline? Well, exactly that is that you don't have time and you know you may come in and we may blow up your beat sheet and <laughs> uh, and it's really great because the writers are all it's it it was interesting because we switched, I guess it was my first year that we switched before they used to be able to write any spec that they wanted. And then we said, like, let's just have them all write their own. And part of that was also for us to see, are they going to be generous with each other? Or are they going to keep their best ideas? Because if they're all writing the same show, are they not going to be as helpful to their fellow writers? And it's always been amazing. They've all been so helpful. And, you know, they have these like group text chains of like, you know, figuring stuff out. But what's also great is after every class, all of our writers go out for a drink, they go to a local bar where they commiserate over the script got blown up or whatever. And then they, you know, over beers, help each other out. And so that's what you need to do is sometimes like if we blow something up, you have your deadline. And if that happens, on a show like you're going to be up all night trying to fix it so i think we're trying to you know teach them that how to take notes also is a hard thing to learn how to understand when something's not working but at the same time if you have a really strong point of view on why it should be that way like how do you debate that and in giving notes to each other you know many people have said over and over that you never tell somebody what's wrong unless you have a fix for them. And so just sort of honing those skills and all of that. 
So how do you select those guest speakers and in particular the mentors that are going to be matched up with each of the writers? Uh, the mentors come from, like I said, either development executives or current executives at Warner Brothers. You know, there's certain people who I think are better at it or, or want to do it. Some people don't have time, you know, like if someone just had a baby, I'm not going to ask them to be a mentor, but when sometimes it doesn't work out and it may just be that match wasn't a love match, which is fine. But in general, I feel because they are there in the interview process and have a say in who they're selecting, like they have a connection to them. So that's kind of how the mentors go. And, and sometimes, you know, we've had like this year, one of our mentors, who's done it every year, just felt like, you know, I need to to take this year off. You know, I'm a little bit overwhelmed with work. So that was fine. And we found someone else who's been great. In terms of the speakers, there are some speakers that we've kind of gone to every single year just because they do their thing. Like the guy who comes and speaks about like the state of the industry and all of that, like he comes every year and that's his talk and he's great at it. And the guy who does our brainstorming talk, like we have him every year cause he's awesome. And then sometimes it depends, you know, sometimes it's, it's availability. If we have a speaker like uh, last year we had Roberto Aguirre Sacasa come and do our pitching talk and he was amazing. And I would have asked him back, but this year he had, Riverdale, he had Sabrina, and then he was, you know, developing Katie Keene. So I was like, there's no way that he's going to have time. So, so then I looked to, you know, which other showrunner would be a great person to talk about that because someone who I know is a good pitcher who can sort of speak about that. So sometimes the speakers change and then, and then we'll have alumni again, people who I know who, you know, who've been through the program have something to say. And sometimes we also change the classes. You know, we tweak some of the classes year to year based on feedback that we've gotten. I always ask our writers, I send out a survey afterwards and just say, full candor, was there anything that was too basic and 101 for you? Was there anything you wished we covered that we didn't? So like the group writing thing, that was the first year that we did that. Um, we hadn't done that the last three years. But someone, had, a couple people expressed an interest in it. And I thought, yeah, that's like a great thing. It happens all the time. So I talked to one of our alumni who had done a ton of it in his job. And he agreed to come on and sort of lead that class. So mm-hmm. we're nimble. Yeah. And how are the mentorships structured? Are they meeting up sort of once a week? Are they just emailing back and forth? How does that kind of work? It's not really structured. I guess there's not like a a clear structure to it. What we tell all the writers is you're driving this relationship as it is with most, I think, mentor-mentee relationships because mentors tend to be much busier (laughs) and they want to be helpful. But, you know, it's not, I don't think it's the mentor's job to be reaching out to the mentee and saying, what do you need? You know, can I give you some advice? So (laughs) in the fall, we tell the mentees, you know, reach out, go get a coffee with your mentor, just have it be, you know, super super casual and, you know, talk about whatever you want to talk about. And then once we get into the writing, so when they write their specs, and then again, when they write their original pilots, they will send their mentors, their outlines and their drafts to get notes. So they're getting notes in the class and from us, but also getting notes from this outside source, which is really nice, I think, to have fresh eyes on it. I also forgot to mention that we also pair them with a writing mentor who is an alum. They get two mentors. They have their executive mentor, and then they have someone who's been through the program a couple years earlier. And then the executive mentors, depending on their role during staffing season, obviously the development executives are much more in tune with what's happening with pilots and advocating for their mentees to get staffed and the current executives maybe more on the returning shows. So they're, they're additive to the process. I sort of become their, you know, their agent or their manager during staffing season. And then beyond that, I mean, we tell all of our writers just because once you get staffed and once you you're on a show that doesn't have to be the end of your relationship with that mentor, even if your mentorship year is over, this is a relationship in the industry that is really you know important to maintain. And speaking of being proactive, what are ways to best use and make the most of the program once you are in it? 
I think, you know, while you're in it, it's really just about that kind of intense, like rigorous nature. And it, you know, no, yes, you have your, your jobs and all that, but, um, and, and I haven't seen this where people kind of are slacking or they're, you know, not turning in things on time. I think there was one writer who, you know, we set a deadline, like you must turn in your beat sheet by noon and we got it at 2 PM. And like, after the second time we said, listen, you know, like the deadlines are the deadlines and we're trying to instill in you this discipline because this is just a workshop, but if this was your job, the showrunner is not going to accept a two hour delay. So, so I think, you know, knowing that the deadlines that we're giving you are real. (laughs) And the other thing, I guess, I don't know if this is the place to say. So one of the reasons in the previous incarnation where writers had to pay to take the workshop was that the person running it at the time felt like if they are paying, then they have an investment in this and they're going to take it seriously. And when my predecessor took over, you know, he sort of felt like that's ridiculous, like no one should have to pay for this. But what he instilled is this idea of if you're not doing the work or if you're not a nice person, <laughs> you know, if you're like in the writer's room and you're just being like very condescending or you're just like the work's not up to par, then we will ask you to leave. And that establishes real world circumstances for a writer, because if you're on a show and you're a jerk or your writing is not good, they won't pick up your option. And so since I've been there, it hasn't happened. I think it's only happened like two or three times in the past 10 years where there was a problem person who was asked to leave. But we do say that because you should know and you should be conducting yourself properly. I guess to answer your question is just taking it as seriously as possible and knowing that this opportunity that thousands of people wish that they had (laughs) and might cut off their right arm to get Mm -hmm. in, that you have it. And this is such a platform for you to launch. So, you know, hopefully you are giving it everything that you have. Once you get into staffing season, I think what's really important and This came up once last year. Um, I won't go into the details, but knowing that when you are meeting with a showrunner, you're representing the workshop. And so anything you do in relation to that meeting or that job offer or whatnot reflects on the workshop. And so you you need to take that seriously and I guess act professionally. Make make sure you're making professional decisions <laughs> that you may not think like the bigger picture that there's repercussions, but there actually are repercussions. And even so like beyond that, you know, as you go into your career, I think people know people that come out of the writer's workshop, like if they know that they're an alumni of it, it is I don't want to say like an elite group, but like there is like that stamp of approval a little bit. And when people find out you are, there is like, oh, like they take you a little bit more seriously. I've heard it from writers as well, where when someone found out that they went through the workshop, they were looked at differently. So I think with that comes just a responsibility to uphold (laughs) like the legacy a little bit and their reputation. So let's look at the staffing at Avell and how do you work with uh, your studio and the industry at large to get your writers from your program staffed? We work only with our studio. So our goal and our job is to get them staffed on Warner Brothers shows. So we're not trying to get them staffed on shows produced by other studios. Um, Obviously, we spent a lot of time and money grooming and nurturing and cultivating these writers. So, you know, we want them to go on our shows and grow into our future showrunners. So basically, it's already starting to happen since we have some shows that have early renewals that are looking for staffing. So often either the showrunner or the current exec will reach out and say, such and such show is looking for writers. Who do you have? If I'm not familiar with the show, I'll say, what are you looking for? And just because it may be a superhero show doesn't mean that they want a genre Greek. Maybe they have enough of those. Maybe they really want someone who is, you know, great on character or they want someone who grew up in a particular place or they're introducing a new character who's going to be 
LGBT. And so they really want an LGBT writer. So based on all of that information, we curate a list of writers and we send them off and hopefully they get interviews and get jobs. And then we also have our writers send us their priority lists of shows, you know, their wish list of, oh, I hope, you know, if there's, if it's at all possible, I would love to be on these shows. And as best as we can, we try and match them with that. At a certain point, it's also many of them will say, I will take any job, but, (laughs) but I also never want to put them on a show that they would not be successful at or be happy at. So basically we wait and we sort of, you know, wait and see which pilots are looking good and what they're looking for and then uh, send submissions and hopefully, you know, then they meet with the showrunners and hopefully get staffed. And uh, what efforts does the program make to keep in touch with and support alumni from the current and previous years, especially if they don't get staffed at the end of the program? Our workshop family is incredibly tight. And, and every year that I've been here, there has been at least one writer who has not gotten staffed during broadcast staffing season. The great thing is that, especially now with cable and streaming, you know, there are opportunities year round. So virtually everyone has been staffed eventually. So maybe they went on to a show in November or they went on to a show the following February or, you know, the following staffing season. So it definitely always happens. And they are still, we do not forget. We don't just say, sorry, you didn't get staff. Like (laughs) good luck with your career. We definitely stay involved in their lives. And also for writers who do get staffed right away and the show gets canceled or it just wasn't the right fit and they weren't asked back. We still stay in their lives. I mean, once we feel like their career's off and running, which usually takes a few years and they've got their agents and their managers and all of that to sort of do the the heavy lifting for them, we're less involved. But even then I may hear, like I was just emailing one of our alumni who's, you know, she's a mid-level writer now, but I heard about a show that was looking for someone that was like, Hey, are you at all interested in this? you know, I'm happy to submit you. So we definitely, we definitely stay involved on the career front. And then we also try and and, and stay like, I mean, I, I have coffees with people all the time, whether it's them just, you know, wanting to reach out to me and tell me how their first year of staffing went, or if they're kind of at a crossroads, they've been a comedy writer. Now they want to switch to drama. How do they do that? You know, what opportunities are there, or it's been a dry spell you know, I'm always sort of still in touch with them. And then we do an alumni kind of get together mixer every year, which is really great because you get people from 10 years ago and people from last year and, you know, at all different levels sort of connecting. And it's all also great to hear the alumni themselves from their years form such tight bonds that they're all still like getting together for barbecues and brunches and, you know, playing now with their kids and all of that. So it is, um, it's a great close knit group. And it's also nice when, current writers join a staff and there's an alum a couple levels ahead of them. They're always looking out for them. So it's, it's, it's good. So you already touched on this a little bit, but how has your program evolved and adapted over the years to suit this ever changing industry? Like most of the evolving happened, like I said, with my predecessor about 10 or 11 years ago. I think, you know, for, for me, the evolving just kind of comes with tweaking some of the classes. As another example, we're doing a class next week, which was based on interest from our current class talking about women in the room. And at first part of me thought, do we need this now? Like maybe we needed it two years ago, but now we're post me too. Is this something? But the more I thought about it and the more I, you know, I I thought actually this, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how much has changed. Like, and maybe it's gotten a little bit better, but maybe not. And so I reached out to three of our female alumni who I know have all had interesting work 
<laughs> experiences <laughs> to say, you know, would you be open to come in and talk cone of silence about your experiences, not just for the women in terms of what to expect, but also for the men in the class, how can they help? You know, what do they do when they see something? So I think, I, I don't know if that's answering the question in terms of evolving, but I think we used to do a class on like decoding the ratings and it's like, do the ratings, I don't know that the ratings <laughs> matter anymore. And as much as I love our research team and they're so awesome, I, you know, it sort of felt like that conversation wasn't necessarily as important. So doing away with that class and trying to find other things that were more helpful for our writers. Beyond that, the, the, the business is changing so rapidly in terms of short orders and, you know, writers going on, you know, doing two two or three different shows in a year. I don't know exactly how to address that, but I'd be open to it if there's a conversation to be had about managing your career in, in light of, you know, 10 episode seasons. And who are some of the notable success stories to come into your program that you're particularly proud of? So from the the early days, we've had people like Terrence Winter and Mark Cherry and Jeff Astroff, Jenna Bands from the more recent era, Joe Henderson, who's the showrunner of Lucifer, Michael Narducci, who was the showrunner of the originals, now is at uh, ABC on an overall deal, Sonia Winton and Jonathan Kidd, who are the co-showrunners of Lovecraft Country, which is an upcoming HBO show that Jordan Peele's producing, Janine Sherman-Barrois, Justin Doble as an overall at Amazon, I think, Latoya Morgan has an overall at AMC, and so on and so forth. Sorry. <laughs> it's hard to remember everyone. <laughs> and uh, what do you see for the future of your workshop and program, as well as all of your other initiatives and the challenges they may face? To speak to, you know, sort of the challenges is partially is sort of the fact that, you know, with streaming and, and all in the short orders, like what, what that means for writers um, who maybe want to be more nimble and aren't, you know, counting on 22 episodes a year and that's all they need to make a living. And obviously there's a lot of our writers and our alumni who are no longer in the Warner Brothers family, but obviously like we still <laughs> claim them as our as our own. But knowing that, I mean, hopefully there will be enough opportunities at Warner Brothers, especially with this new Warner streaming service that nobody knows anything about, but you know that there will be more and more shows that we are able to, even in that short order span, be able to keep them and not ha and have them still be able to make a living off of whatever jobs that there are. But, you know, it's, it is a question. Even though we're not a diversity program, I think the diversity issue is a complicated one. I obviously am a huge proponent of giving women and people of color opportunities that they have not had. I also know that it's incredibly difficult for white males and surprisingly, increasingly white females to get jobs. They're not diverse and... Until the hierarchy of a writer's room is more balanced and we have more people of color and women showrunning at higher levels, I don't know what the answer is because I think the challenge is that still most showrunners are going to be white males and they're going to start staffing at, you know, EP, co-EP level and they're going to hire the people they worked with before, which are predominantly white males. And so by the time they get down to staff writer, they take a look at the makeup of their room and go, oh God, like <laughs> we have a problem here. And so again, as much as I really want opportunities for women and people of color, I also see firsthand incredibly talented white males and females who are not even being given an opportunity 
you know, because of that. So it's anyways, it's, it's a very complicated issue that probably deserves its own podcast. But I would like to figure that out because I don't want anyone to not have an opportunity who is truly deserving because they are so talented. And when I see them not being able to get a job when they are deserving, it's frustrating. So briefly, what other initiatives for talent development and inclusion are there at Warner Brothers? And where does the writing program fit in with all that? We also have a director's workshop, which is similar idea, but trying to take directors and give them their first episodic directing opportunities. It's different in the sense that you need to have a body of work. You can't just come out of film school with a cool short and expect a showrunner to hand over the reins of his, you know, his like $4 million episode to you. So compared to the writer's workshop, like I said, you could be living in the middle of the country, not working in Hollywood and, you know, be an amazing writer and you can launch your career because you're low, you know, as a staff writer, you're not expected to carry that much weight. You're low man on the totem pole, but on the director's side, you are the leader of this multi-million dollar episode. So it presents its own challenges. But anyway, so we have that the director's workshop and those are the two things that I run that I oversee in terms of kind of launching new talent and we sort of think of them as the farm system, you know, like, you know, <laughs> fielding the farm team or the studio. And uh, what do you feel is the hardest part of your job? And conversely, what is the most rewarding? Mm, the hardest part of my job is also maybe the most rewarding, which is like, as we get into staffing season, because like I said, I really do become their agents and their managers which is why each year I'm reminded I'm so glad that I'd never became an agent or a manager <laughs> because I believe in these people and I've spent so much time with them. And I like, I don't sleep for weeks as I'm just like nervous about people getting jobs. And when they get the job, that's the most rewarding thing. It's all the work is paid off and I'm so excited for them. And then when they don't get the job and they don't get staffed, it's crushing. Cause I feel it as much as, the, I mean, not as much, but you know, I feel it like they feel it. And so it's hard cause it is, to an, as much as I said before that we do have so much support from the studio, it's still advocating and convincing people to believe in people that and, and see the talent that you believe in so strongly. And 99% of the time they do. And but the 1%, it's hard to deal with. So do you have any final advice for writers thinking about submitting to your program? Write the show that you can write the heck out of <laughs> trying to be PG, write the heck out of it. Proofread and proofread again. Think about, you know, if you do make it to the interview stage and you haven't thought about sort of either your bio and telling people about yourself or what you write, think about that, you know? What do you want to say about yourself that's going to be compelling and memorable? I mean, you don't want to sound over-rehearsed, but I think it's definitely good to practice. I mean, even in the things that I'm saying today, like when I first started this job, I was like, what? Uh, wait, oh, wait, there was something else. I noticed that, you know, it's sort of like the bullet points in my head. And now I can kind of do it rote because I've done it so much and hopefully it doesn't feel too rehearsed. But, you know, the same thing is like you want to know what you want to say and have done it a few times. And, you know, even practice on your friends and have them let you know when they started checking out or that part was like you didn't need to talk about that or highlight this. And uh, for our listeners, uh, would you mind giving out the website and social media information of the Warner Brothers Television Writers Workshop as well as the the dates? (laughs) Yeah, sorry. I knew you were going to ask that. Shoot. Um, I think the website is televisionworkshop.warnerbros.com. It is? Okay, good. Yay. I was going to say, otherwise, just Google Warner Brothers Workshop. (laughs) The application dates for the Writers Workshop is May 1st to May 31st. And the workshop runs from, we don't have set dates, but it's generally mid-October to mid-March. Excellent. 
And before we go, if you enjoyed this episode and want to be notified when the next episode of the TV writing program series drops, don't forget to subscribe to our Paper Team podcast, where you will get access to all 130 plus episodes about the craft and business of TV writing, available on both iTunes at paperteam.co slash iTunes and all Android podcasters at paperteam.co slash Android. And we are now on Patreon as well. So consider supporting the podcast on our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Get stuff like cheat sheet summaries of our episodes, bonus content, merch, all that kind of thing. So we can keep producing a great show like this one for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for tuning in. And thanks so much, Rebecca, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And uh, you can get all the show notes for this episode, including all the information for the Warner Brothers workshop at paperteam.co slash 133. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. And do you want to plug either the, the workshops, uh, social media, or your own? Uh, we do have a Facebook page. <laughs> um, I think it's Warner Brothers Television Workshop. That also will just kind of keep you up to date on rapidly approaching deadlines. Great. Excellent. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, we will be doing our second mentorship episode with Paul, and it will be all about the beat sheet of his new comedy pilot, Mid-Death Crisis. So we'll see you then.